0: This is the fourth and final episode of the Richard's Report series on behavioural economics. The first three episodes I spoke with Harvard Associate Professor John Bashiras. I hope that you enjoyed these episodes and if you're joining us now you're welcome to stay and keep listening but it will probably be best to start at episode one of the mini-series. So who are we speaking for this final episode of the series, of the quadrilogy
1: I'm uh, Michael Norton, I'm the Harold Briarley Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, which is the longest possible title I could have, Uh, mainly I'm a professor of marketing here at HBS.
0: Yes, we're lucky to be speaking with Michael Norton. Apart from being a lecturer at Harvard, he also co-wrote the famous book, Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. He has also given a famous TED Talk on money and happiness that has now been watched over 5 million times. And now Michael has hit the big time on The Richard's Report. Let's get straight into it.
1: You're listening to The Richard's Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richard's Report.
0: Michael, can you please share with us why is the psychology of investment so interesting?
1: I got interested in investment in general and I think especially the psychology of it so I'm not super interested in how to invest your money to get the highest returns financially I'm interested in how to invest your time and money to get the highest returns emotionally and we don't think of our time this way sometimes we think of our money this way but usually not our time as um, every single thing we do has opportunity costs so everything we buy for example means we can't buy something else And every decision we make on how to spend our time means we can't spend our time on something else. But we don't approach life that way at all. So if someone says, do you want to go to lunch? I look at my calendar and I say, sure. But what I could do in theory is say, what what are all of the things I could do during that hour? That's the opportunity cost. (laughs) Yeah, and then decide. And it could be something like a hot air balloon ride. You know what I mean? I I could really think about every hour. What are all the possibilities? Is lunch with this person going to be the best one? Maybe, maybe not. But it means that when we make these decisions, we're investing in them. We decide, but not really, that we're going to invest in having lunch with this person. And then we keep having lunch with that person for years and years and years, and then that's an investment we've made. But it's often not really that thoughtful at time one. So that's why it's so interesting to me is we we behave as though we've consciously actively invested in various things. But in fact, it's a little bit random and we try in our research to get people to think a bit more about, have you invested in the right things or are there other things you should invest in? My Achilles heel is investing in time in social media, (laughs) which is uh, obviously not always a great... Not great, yeah. Yeah. Um, Unless you look super good in the pictures, (laughs) then I think it's fine. Then it's good, I think. (laughs) So
0: before we move on, I just want to stop here for a bit because at the time of releasing this podcast, it's just after Christmas in 2018... Most people have got a lot of downtime on right now, so I think it's worth reflecting on what are you doing with your time? How are you currently investing this time? I know I watch too much of the Big Bash, and probably reading stuff on Twitter takes up too much of my time too, but maybe that's not new. Maybe you knocked over a whole Netflix series in 24 hours though, or maybe you played Fortnite for 12 hours straight one day. Anyway, I thought it's worth reflecting on this concept. This episode is brought to you by Six Park, Australia's leading online investment advisor. If part of your New Year's resolutions for 2019 are to sort out your finances or to set up an investment portfolio, then go to sixpark.com.au, click try Sixpark now, and you can see how Six Park would set up your investment portfolio for you. Six Park set you up with your own globally diversified investment portfolio over seven asset classes and manage it for you too. This can even save you more time so you have more time to do other things. See what I did there? Alright, to find out more, go to sixpark.com.au or email me on ted at sixpark.com.au Okay, let's get back to Mike and onto something he calls the IKEA effect. And no, it's not something that can happen to you if you eat too much food at the IKEA cafeteria. Michael, uh, can you please share with us uh,
1: what the IKEA effect is? The IKEA effect is related to the psychology of investment, and it's this idea that um, investing in things feels good. So um, uh, most people have something that they made in their life. Um, for a lot of people, oddly enough, it's a, some pottery class they took one time, and they have a mug or a plate or a bowl looks terrible, but they, you know, they love it. Or it could be a painting that they did at some point or a stone carving or whatever it might be. Or a bed that they put together from Ikea, for example. And what we find in our research is that people, when they make something themselves, they really, really come to overvalue it. Like five times more than other people value it. Because when I make a mug, to me it's so beautiful. And my friends, coworkers, partner, everyone else... It's a piece of junk. And so, from a rational standpoint, I'm making a mistake because I have a market value for this object that's totally not what the market will pay for it. But from an emotional standpoint, I'm not making a mistake at all because if I made the mug myself, I really, really love it. It's on my shelf. I like looking at it. If I bought the mug, you know, it goes in the back of the cabinet and I never look at it again. So, when again, that, that distinction between what we should do with our money just in terms of dollars and cents, and what we should do with our money in terms of leading interesting lives that make us happy and engaged. Sometimes the thing that looks like a bias is in fact really, really good for us. And you came up with this hypothesis and, and proved this with a study. Yes, yeah, so we, one of the fun things about uh, my job is typically what we do are experiments. So we'll have, we'll put people in different worlds and see how they interact basically. So very simple experiments like Some people, we show them a beautiful piece of origami, and we ask them how much they'll pay for it. And it's actually quite nice, and people say, you know, I'll give you about a quarter for it. They're really pretty. We had them really well done. Then we have other people make them themselves, and they basically make a crumpled up piece of paper. (laughs) But they're willing to pay just as much for their special creation as other people are willing to pay for the expert one. So we, we literally think that our terrible origami crane that has one wing and look good at all. We love it that much. Now, if you ask other people about it, they say it's terrible. So we can really show with very, very simple experiments, just, you know, pennies kinds of thing. We tried to do these really stripped down experiments to kind of reveal the broader phenomenon that happens probably beyond just origami, but out in the world as well.
0: So it's been proven that we overvalue things that we made and I won't lie, it didn't take me too long to think of this podcast. Michael mentioned the crumpled up origami that people overvalue that, because they made it. And I really hope that I don't overvalue this podcast just because I make it. Anyway, just food for thought. Let's keep going and on to money and happiness. Michael, you've, you've actually written a, a book on this. Um, a very broad question here.
1: Can money buy happiness? Money and happiness, uh, people have studied them separately for a long time, uh, and then people started studying them together, and uh, Liz Dunn and I were, were two of those people, and, and most people have a theory, if you ask them, would having more money make you happier? Most people say, of course, it's obvious. Uh, it just feels right. And if I said, you know, if you're an 8 out of 10 happy now, uh, how much money would you need to be a perfect 10? People can answer the question. They, they'll they think, oh, $7 million, something like that. Something will come to mind, and they'll say, then I'd be a perfect 10. Which means that we really do have a pretty strong theory that money can buy happiness because we think if we have more of it, we'll literally jump up the scale for happiness. But if you look at the data, it is true that money, having more money is correlated with being happier, but it's much, much weaker than people think. It's there, so, so more money typically makes people happier than less money, there's no doubt, but it's not as life-changing often as people think. And so what we've tried to look at in our research is, um, and it's such an obvious, I can't even really call it an insight, observation, which is that it's not how much money you have, it's what you do with it. Of course, I mean, it's, it's totally obvious, and yet that's not how people had been thinking about it. So we tried to look literally, if you had $100,000 and I had $100,000, technically we have the same income, and so we should be the same happy, but if you spend all your money on just you know, buying collectible items that you put in cases and never enjoy, and I spend mine on experiences with my friends and family, of course, we're going to have different lives and be different levels of happiness. So money can buy happiness, but the ways that we typically use it aren't necessarily the most productive. If you'd like to find out more, Michael's the co-author of Happy Money, The New Science of
0: Smarter Spending. One more question. Why is rediscovering things so interesting?
1: My former um, doctoral student, Ting Zhang, came to me uh, a few years back uh, with this idea that um, why do people really, really love time capsules? And they're very common, actually, where you take things that you like now. Think about how weird this is. You take things that you like now and you put them in a, in a box <laughs> in the ground because you want to, 10 years, 20 years later, dig them back up and look at them. So you can lock them again. <laughs> exactly. It's a crazy, crazy, usually if we like things, we keep them, like we don't bury them and then dig or them Or buy more them. Right, exactly. And so she just had this intuition of what what is going on with that. And it turns out, and we can do experiments literally where we we don't do 20-year experiments, of course, but... We can have people write about a mundane day in their life, like today. If I said write about your, your day today and you wrote it down now, it would be boring. For almost everyone, anybody listening, it would be boring. And then if I tell you, um, do you want to read that in a month or in three months? People say, no, it's boring. I mean, I know what I did today. Except that then three months later when we show them what they wrote, they're fascinated by it. Because they've forgotten it. And they get this little window into who they were on that day and who they talked to and what emails they got. And it's really interesting to us to rediscover that. Time capsules are the exact same principle. Yes, I could have kept my whatever the entire time and had it on my shelf. But getting rid of it and forgetting about it slightly and then seeing it again and remembering how important it was it's almost like a peak experience for people. We don't do it enough, in fact. It, weirdly enough, the implication is we should hide things more often and then rediscover them later and get more enjoyment out of them than if we keep it all along. Does it have to be something flashy, new, or exciting? One of the cool things that, that Ting can show is that the it, the more mundane it is, the more excited we are to see it later on. So if you buy um, a brand-new watch that's amazing, a Rolex Uh, and you put it in the ground and then dig it up later, it doesn't do much for you because you you remember it. You're well aware of what the Rolex is, and you're never gonna forget that you have like $25,000 watch buried in the ground. But if you put mundane things from your day in the ground, you will forget them. Like pictures of your, you don't need to take pictures of your wedding, for example. You're gonna remember your wedding. You should take pictures of random days (laughs) because you'll forget them entirely. So weirdly, it's the mundane things that we love to discover later, And the big things, we haven't forgotten them, so it's not really rediscovery.
0: Just like Michael said, it's not about how much money you make, it's actually what you do with it that's more important. And something else I wanna touch on is that we generally get more enjoyment out of experiences. Something I learned about experiences is the fact that they actually fade over time in our memory actually makes experiences even more exciting. How so? Well, here's an example. Say you ask a recently married couple um, and ask them how much fun they are currently having on their honeymoon and they'll tell you a certain amount of enjoyment. They'll probably say that they're having a really good time. However, fast forward five or ten years time. Now, assuming that couple is still together and that they don't hate each other. Well, ask them again how much fun that they had on their honeymoon and they'll tell you that they had the best time ever. Well, what happened there? Well, the reality faded, and as it faded, it became even more exciting. That's what happens with the experiences. Before I move on, just hello to all my listeners that are about to go on their honeymoon too. I hope you all have a fantastic time. Before we go, if you'd like to check out Michael's book, Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending, there will be more information available on this on the Richard's Report blog on the Six Park website. So check it out at sixpark.com.au and I'll also have information up on Michael's famous TED Talk too. As I've previously mentioned, this is the season finale for the four-part Quadrilogy. I hope that you really enjoyed it and that you learned a few things along the way too. Thanks to Michael and John for providing their time and giving us some great insight on the subject. If you'd like to find out more information on their great course that they've, they provide at Harvard Business School, this will be on the show notes too. Before I go... I'd really appreciate it if you took a moment and gave me a rating on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. It all helps me continue to get the great guests I do on the show. Hope that you had a great Christmas and a happy new year. And if you're late to the party with this podcast and you're listening at some other time in the year, be it March or April, then I hope you had a great Easter. I'm Ted Richards and see you next time on The Richards Report.